today on The Ticker Tapes, we hear from Vicky about the life-changing diagnosis she received at just 38. When I got my diagnosis, I went home and I still went back to work. (laughs) I went back to work. I managed about two weeks and I just couldn't cope with it. So I, I was off sick and then I phoned my boss one day after I'd spoken to my GP, I think. And I said, I'm not going to be able to carry on working. And he said, Vicky, I'm not surprised. I don't know how you've carried on this long. Um, You've done really well. And um, I just cried. From the British Harp Foundation, I'm Ruth Huntman. And on the ticker tapes, we hear from people living with heart and circulatory conditions. In this episode, Vicky, now 47, talks to me about how a shock diagnosis of heart failure changed her life as she knew it forever. Vicky, can you just tell me a little about yourself? Yeah, so I am 47 now. I was born with a hole in the heart. um, And I just remember, I don't ever remember being specifically told, sat down and told that I had a, a problem with my heart. It was just something that I always remember knowing. And I used to go to the hospital once a year for a checkup on my birthday. And they would just say, yep, nothing's changed come back next year and that's kind of how it started and then when I was 12 or 13 I think it kind of closed up and we thought that was that. So is, is it fair to say it didn't really sort of affect you adversely in your younger years it sort of rectified itself? Yeah I mean I was always told to do everything the same as any other child I was not told about any limits or boundaries anything that I needed to be careful of So I just pretty much had the childhood of any other child. But obviously we didn't know about the other problems until they happened later on in my teenage years. So explain a little bit about that, what happened. It was about, you were about 12 then when things started to go a bit wrong, weren't you? Well, I was about 11 or 12 when the holes healed up and we thought that was that. I wouldn't need to have any more regular checkups, had a perfectly normal heart. Then when I was 15, I remember my best friend, Sheena, she lived in the next road and I'd finished school and everything and I'd gone home, got changed, went out of the back door to go and see her. And I just remember feeling this almighty thumping in my chest. And I looked down and I I must have had about three or four layers of clothes on because it was like March or April. So it was quite cold and I could just see all my clothes moving and I'm like, what's going on? So I kind of left it because I wanted to go and see my friend. So I went and saw my friend. And then the next day I told my foster mum, something's not right. So she took me straight to the doctors. The doctor said, your heart's in an irregular rhythm. You need to go to the hospital and have a cardioversion, which is a procedure where you have, it was a general anaesthetic back then, especially because I was um, pediatric. And they put you to sleep and then they stop your heart electrically with the paddles that they use for cardiac arrests they stop it and then they start it back again and hopefully in a regular rhythm which uh, happened it got back into a regular rhythm but they said to me the reason it's happened is because your mitral valve has just collapsed we don't know why um, but it's just suddenly collapsed so you're going to need open heart surgery to get it fixed so that was in like April wow can I just interrupt and ask you I I mean you're talking very calmly about that, and but you were just 15. Did you sort of understand the enormity of what was going on? I kind of did, but I knew that I didn't feel well mm. and that it needed to be done. So, I mean, before I had the cardio version, I was terrified because I thought, what if they start my, stop my heart and then they can't get it going again? I was That's what I was really scared yeah. about. Yeah. Yeah really really scared about that and then once that was done I mean I remember crying before I had that done and bless my poor poor foster parents you know they'd taken on this child at 12 years old they had their own family of probably four five six six children to deal with as well and then they had me having to deal with all of this as well bless them so I mean they were amazing the whole family were amazing and then yeah literally it should have happened within two weeks Apparently the referral got lost. Nine months later, I collapsed. Bearing in mind, I was still going to school and working a part-time job as well with a collapsed mitral valve. And then, yeah, nine months later, I collapsed. Stand, I went to stand up and I collapsed. So they phoned an ambulance. The ambulance came and said, right, you need to get her 
to the John Radcliffe because we were living in Aylesbury at the time, which is Buckinghamshire. Right. And it was a local hospital that had sent the referral to the John Radcliffe because they obviously specialised in cardiac care there. So my boyfriend at the time, his dad, who was a bus driver, thankfully said, I'll take her. So over we went. And they said this should have been really done within a fortnight of the diagnosis because the damage where the mitral valve had collapsed and all the blood is rushing back, it stretched your heart, which, of course, when you've got a stretched heart, the impulses, the electric pulses for the heartbeat come from the walls of the heart. So when it's stretched, that's what's causing the atrial fibrillation for it to go out of rhythm all the time. So, yeah, within two weeks, they had me back in. And that was scary. You know, that was really scary. I was si- I turned 16 by this point. I hadn't done very well with my exams because obviously I'd been poorly throughout the whole time where I should have sat my exams. Um, so that's something that's affected me lifelong. Yeah. Can I just, sorry, to because there's so much information there. Just going back, where is it you collapsed? Was it at home? Yeah, it was at home. Literally the doorbell rang. So I stood up to go and run and get the door. And I was upstairs at the time and I literally got to the top of the stairs and just collapsed. Thankfully, I collapsed backwards and not forwards down the stairs. Oh, my word. That would have been catastrophic. And um, was yeah. it so your your valve had collapsed and that was causing your heart to go out of rhythm again? That's why you collapsed. Yeah. And obviously because I'd stood up quite quickly, my yeah. blood pressure just cut, just dropped as well. And yeah, there was a few different things going on and. But, you know, I'd just been been told, oh, just wait, just wait. It'll come through. It'll come through. And we kept phoning and they were like, no, we haven't got it. And, yeah, it took me collapsing and getting rushed to the John Radcliffe. And then they were like, you know, this should have been done within two weeks maximum of you going in and finding out the valve had collapsed. Wow. And because of that, it's caused, you know, a lot of, a lot of damage, which has led to where I am today. Yeah. And and tell me when you tell me a bit about that operation, because you were just saying that you you were scared where, just before that operation to replace uh, to repair your valve. Yeah, I mean, I was really scared. I knew that they were going to break open my ribs, open up my chest, operate on my heart. And when you're 16, I mean, even as a 47 year old, having to face something like that is terrifying. But as a 16 year old, you just it is really really terrifying I mean I remember the night before the morning having to have a bath in iodine which I don't think they do now they use something else instead but yeah having to have a bath in iodine and not being able to eat anything and I remember the nurse saying to me you probably won't be able to have children easily there's a chance you might not live past 40 and I'm taking all this in this is just a casual chat with a nurse Oh, and um, there was another lady in there that was in her 30s and she'd had, which was pregnant. And when she'd had to have a C-section, they'd had to sterilise her at the same time and give her open heart surgery. So I'm seeing all of this on a ward as a 16-year-old. It's too much to take in, isn't it? It's a lot to take in, yeah. How Um, did you begin to process that at the time or were you just focused on surviving that operation? I mean, I was focused on surviving the operation, definitely. And then once I came round, I mean, when I came round, they'd actually had to rush me back down to theatre because I'd had some really bad bleeding internally. So I didn't know anything about this. So when I came round, I'd had quite a lot of blood. And my poor foster parents stood there and my boyfriend at the time, just completely ashen faced. And I come round and I'm thinking, I feel amazing. I actually feel amazing. Even though I'd had open heart surgery and I was in a lot of pain, I just felt so much better. Yeah, I didn't realise how much better I would feel after having it done. You said you were scared, but was the big fear was, I might not come through this, I might die during the operation? That was the biggest fear for me, yeah. yeah. Because when you're asleep in an operation, you've got no control over anything. You can't say to them carry on I know my heart's not beating but carry on keep going don't stop I don't want to die you know you can't tell them that you have to have all of your trust in them to do the right thing you know and if something bad does happen you have to trust them to just keep carrying on and fighting for your life on your behalf yeah yeah that's really well put um I can't imagine what you went through I mean the inf- as you say at 16 being told other stuff like you might not be able to have children. Did they explain why at that point or did you not really want to? Um, 
Just... I don't think, yeah, they didn't really explain it at that point. Later on, it was explained that if I wanted children, because of the medication I was on, I would have to come off some of it. So I was on warfarin, which is a blood thinner. Mm -hmm. That's really bad for pregnancy. And I think there was a couple of others because I was still, because even though I'd had the open heart surgery, because of the heart being stretched so much, it didn't shrink back. Mm -hmm. So I was constantly in and out of atrial fibrillation. And I, and then my heart would go really, really fast, like 150 beats a minute or more. So I was having to have drugs beyond them all the time in case it went back into atrial fibrillation and I didn't ha have time to get back to the hospital because there's an extra part of your heart, a little appendage, which can whip up the blood and cause blood clots. Mm -hmm. So when it goes out of rhythm, you've got much higher risk. So they had to keep me on this medication all the time. So it wasn't really massively explained to me back then, but I think I remember talking to a doctor one day and yeah, they just said, you'll have to come off some of the medication for your first three months of your pregnancy. So you'd have to stop taking it. And then once you get pregnant, don't take it for three months. Then during the middle three months, take it again. Then the last three months, stop taking it. And then obviously when you have the baby, if everything goes okay, you can go back on it. And that doesn't include any complications with pressure on the heart, carrying a baby full term, things like that. And then when I was 22, I fell pregnant. It wasn't planned. And I think I kind of kept thinking, I'm not going to see the doctor. I'll wait, I'll wait. And I must have been about three or four months pregnant. And everyone's saying to me, Vicky, are you pregnant? And I'm like, no, no, I'm not pregnant. Because I was really slim then. And mm -hmm. it was obvious I was pregnant. So I thought, I better go to the doctors. And yeah, I went and they were like, yes, you're extremely pregnant. I was like, okay. So I went to have my first scan a couple of weeks later. And I took my partner and my best friend. And we had the scan. And she just said to me, I just remember seeing this black hole. And she just said to me, well, it appears that you were pregnant, but you're not anymore. Oh. And I just thought, what a nice way to tell a young person that they're not carrying a baby anymore. So, of course, that was really upsetting. We had to go and sit in the waiting room full of other heavily pregnant women, knowing what we knew. And then a few days later, I had to go and have an operation to because it was a missed miscarriage. I had no bleeding or anything. Yeah. So there was no signs that I'd had a miscarriage. And did they, was any explanation given as to why you'd, you'd had that? Was that linked to your condition or your medication? Yeah, it was linked to medication. Yeah. They, they talked about warfarin quite a lot. Yeah. They said there'd been a lot of studies done with warfarin and they'd heard quite a few women had had pregnancy with warfarin, a successful pregnancy with warfarin, and they didn't necessarily think that they would hear about the pregnancies that hadn't been successful with warfarin, but they knew it was quite high. So, yeah, they just said pregnancy isn't normally viable when you're on warfarin. Wow. Okay. Did, but, did you yeah. make, I mean, I meant to kind of, uh, we've sidetracked slightly, but seeing as we're talking about it now, did you, at that point, did you make a decision or did you, did you feel you had to make a decision not to have a family in the future? No, I really wanted a family. Yeah. I mean, being fostered and having, yeah. before I was fostered, I didn't have a conventional childhood, unfortunately. Yeah. I don't know both my parents. So right. I really, really, really wanted to have my own family and also be well enough to foster as well, because I know just how much it helped me. I mean, I'd be in a completely different position if I hadn't been fostered by the family I was fostered, without a doubt. So massive shout out to all those foster parents out there. They don't realise how important they are. Absolutely. They're a lifesaver or the lifeline. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially with mine, what they went through with everything with me. But I really wanted children. So I eventually found somebody that wanted children with me when I was in my 30s. I was about 38. So I went to see a specialist at Southampton who she specialises in pregnancy and women with heart problems. And after a long conversation, it was an absolute no, no, it's, there's a minimum 50% chance it will kill you, even two months in, it puts so much pressure on the heart. And then if it doesn't, you've got all the complications with the medication, with carrying the baby, you wouldn't go full term, it could put you at a point where you need a heart transplant straight away, because it put that much pressure on your heart. And if there isn't a heart there for you, then, you know, there's nothing else that can be done. Plus, there's a baby that's going to come early. Um, it was just so many complications. So I kind of left that meeting 
absolutely devastated, to be honest, because I'd always had that little bit of hope yeah. that, you know, there was that little thread that I could cling on to that there was some way around it. So, yeah, when I was told that, it was it was devastating. I, I can't imagine how you would even begin to come to terms with news like that, to be honest. Well, yeah, you just have to get on with it. I mean, there was no... There was no counselling or therapy or anything else offered. Once I left that appointment, that was it. I was just left to my own devices. I had to just deal with it. And was that before you received your diagnosis, which we'll come on to in a bit of heart failure? That was after. Afterwards. So So that was about a year afterwards. Right. So let's let's go back a little bit. Um, So after when you were... Uh, 16 and you'd had this operation to repair your valve you said you woke up from that operation feeling great um, mm. but yet you had to have these you know constant cardioversions to to sort of rectify the the atrial fibrillation I think how many in all did you have over the years oh, from the age of 15 yeah to the age of probably mid-30s I had between 30 and 40 I know I had more than 30. I mean, once I had two within a fortnight wow. because it just they just weren't lasting. And then on my op- last open heart surgery when I was 33, they redid it again. Within 24 hours, it'd gone back into AF. So just it's just stayed out since it stayed in AF since. Uh, and there's nothing you can do about that? No, no, no. And it's probably one of my worst symptoms because the heart's so enlarged, it hits my left lung. So I can feel it all the time Mm -hmm. I can feel it all down my left side all across my chest all up my neck all in my head so when the palpitations are quite bad quite forceful it actually feels like I'm being winded from inside wow and this may seem like a bit of a stupid question but even though you said you you felt great after that operation um clearly there were still ongoing problems with AF were you between those um cardioversion procedures were you able to live a relatively normal life and sort of do things you wanted to do and plan yeah I mean I'd always been told throughout my life live your life as a normal person there's no restrictions on you so I carried on with that attitude so I'd go out partying with my friends working (laughs) So, yeah, I, I did. I lived a completely normal life, although it did take its toll on me. I, you know, things would really wipe me out. And then I found as I got older, when I was working, I just couldn't go out with my friends anymore. I was just working, going home and sleeping. Yeah. And then that was when I said, something's not right. So Yeah. So t- tell me about the, the period line leading up to your heart failure diagnosis because I know you, you you'd be already been told that your heart had been damaged but had had they you know were you told what the future would bring that your heart would get worse or w- were you unduly worried at that time I mean not really nobody's really kind of given me a prognosis apart from when I went to Papworth for a transplant assessment in 2012 and I did ask them the, you know, the question, how long? And they said, well, we can't really give you an answer to that. But most people with the same condition heart that you've got which uh, and the diagnosis, which was restrictive cardiomyopathy, we'd expect to see you back for a transplant in about four or five years. And that was nine years ago. So, right. um, but yeah, just nothing's really been. I don't think anybody likes to actually say firmly this is what will happen or this is how long or because it's different for everybody I guess yeah yeah but when you so fast forwarding to when you were 38 and tell me about when you were diagnosed with heart failure and, and how much of a shock that came to you I mean I knew something wasn't right and they'd been doing tests and they tried different things and they couldn't really find out what was wrong so it wasn't a massive shock but I went into hospital to have some more tests at Southampton and there was a bit of complication. So I ended up staying in for two weeks, I think. And it was towards the end of that two weeks, they came and said, had a chat with me. And they were really, really good. And they said, unfortunately, we have diagnosed that you've got restrictive cardiomyopathy, which is a type of heart failure. Um, so we're going to refer you to Papworth for a transplant assessment. So at that point, I thought, oh, this is going to be amazing. I can have a heart transplant. I'll be better. Quick fix. Yeah, exactly. Quick fix. Yeah. yeah. Um, And obviously, I found out since that 
it's completely the opposite, really. Yeah. And what were those symptoms that you, you said that you knew something wasn't right? What, how were you feeling up until that diagnosis? What was different? Um, I was really, really tired all yeah. the time. Yeah. I couldn't go upstairs. I was getting breathless. Everything felt like I was climbing a mountain. So, you know, it's like trying to walk through treacle trying to climb up a ladder when just trying to walk normally or everything was harder and I was literally just working I couldn't even do my job properly people were having to make allowances for me at work and they were brilliant but it wasn't solving the problem so yeah that was when I kept saying something's not right and they did more tests and your job at the time you were delivering car parts so that was that involved you know walking around a lot and obviously carrying heavy objects and stuff so Mm, yeah yeah literally I would have to leave about quarter past seven in the morning which meant I was up at half past six every morning drive the van to work go upstairs in the office which was obviously meant climbing stairs which was something I was really trying to avoid by this point then having to carry all different car parts to the van like 205 litre barrels of oil which I didn't carry but I'd have to move once they were in the van Loads of other heavy things, big bits of cars, wheels, bonnets, sides of cars, engine parts, brakes, everything you can think that goes on a car that's heavy. I was having to carry in a big box and then take it all back out when I got to each different garage. Um, But it was getting to the point where staff were carrying the box to the van. And then when I got to the garages, the mechanics were coming out and getting the parts out from. They were all really, really good. But again, it just it didn't. It couldn't carry on that way forever. So did you realise, unfortunately, quite quickly after you were told that you were given your diagnosis that you'd have to give up work? Yeah, when I got my diagnosis, um, I went home and I still went back to work. (laughs) I went back to work. I managed about two weeks and I just couldn't I couldn't cope with it. So I, I was off sick. And then I phoned my boss one day after I'd spoken to my GP, I think. And I said, I'm not going to be able to carry on working. And he said, Vicky, I'm not surprised. I don't know how you've carried on this long. Um, You've done really well. And um, I just cried. I absolutely cried because for me, working is a massive part of my life. It's as I'm sure it is for everybody. It's not just going to work to earn money. It's going to work to socialise, have fun, laugh, interact with other people, you know, get to do things all day. Everything's an adventure, isn't it? Driving here, driving there, meeting different people, talking, having conversations with different people. So all of that was going to disappear for me. Yeah. And so is it fair to say that you felt that like you'd lo- when you had to give up work so quickly that you felt like you'd lost part of your identity? You'd, you'd lost part of you? I'd massively lost part of me. Um, you know, I'd lost the Vicky that drove around every day, waving at people that she knew on the, on the roads and chatting to all these different people. You know, I'd done it for a few years. So whenever I went to a garage, I knew these people. It wasn't the first time I'd met them. Some, some of them had become personal friends that, you know, I used to go out in the evenings with or the weekends with, talk to regularly. So that was all gone. It slowly dwindled out, the friendships. And then also friendships with personal friends that I'd known years that used to go out to the pub with or club in or days out things like that that all stopped as well um you know some of them I do still see but I definitely don't see them as often as I used to because I can't do the things that they do so it it can be a really really lonely life when you're diagnosed with heart failure you don't just lose your health you lose everything yeah did did you feel an element of anger that some friends, you know, you weren't invited out anymore. Did did part of you think, you know, why can't you understand? I'm still the same Vicky. I just can't do the same things. I did. Yeah. At first, I used to get quite angry about it, especially when you see photos of them all together on social media, having a lovely time and you know that you've not been invited. But then I realised that not a lot of them knew about heart failure. They didn't know. They just knew that I was really poorly and that I couldn't do these things anymore. So it's also about educating people as well. You can't just expect your friends and family to suddenly know everything about heart failure just because you've been given a diagnosis. Yeah. So you have to cut them a bit of slack as well. Yeah, that's that's really generous of you, but, but a really good point. And can I also ask you how, presumably losing your job, 
or, or having to give up work so soon afterwards, financially, that must have been had a big impact on you as well. So that was another worry. It was a massive worry. I mean, I'd taken a loan out for my car. I'd obviously got bills to pay, rent to pay, bills to pay, food. My first, there's so many things, you know, everybody has so many bills to pay and then suddenly everything's cut off. And then you go to speak to uh, the government to ask for help and they need so many different things for you to be able to prove that you're not well enough to work. So it takes a long time to get things like doctor's notes together, letters from the specialists. These don't all come up in an instant because they're very busy people. So when you phone and say, can I have a doctor's letter for this or a a sick note for this? So these, there's, there's so many obstacles. So I think it was like three months I had no money for. So I had to go and sell all of my jewellery that I'd got throughout my life. Um, I'd got some really nice jewellery given to me presents, you know, 21st, 18th, 30th birthday. I had to go and sell it, everything. And I think I literally got like a couple of hundred pounds for all of it, which was next to nothing, just to try and tide me over to pay over the necessary bills, the ones that couldn't wait you know, until some money came through. And then you're having to try and justify to the government in a million different ways, fill out a 70-page form for one thing and another 40-page form for another. Or meanwhile, trying to deal with the stress of having a heart failure diagnosis and having no money and not knowing where your next meal is going to come from and if the electric's going to be cut off. Yeah, now, this is... I mean, this is so interesting and thank you for being so frank about it because it it shows that this is the thing about heart disease as well, like you've just said, as well as dealing with that shock news that you now had heart failure, there was all these other pressures on you, which, you know, it's not fair. And people don't understand that it's not a case of, you know, taking pills every day. It really does change your life, doesn't it, forever? It does. It's it in itself, the financial stress can be more overwhelming than the stress of the heart failure diagnosis. I certainly found that that was the case. I was more worried about losing my home, not finding food, not being able to run the car to get to my hospital appointments, you know, not being able to have money to pay for the car park when I get to the hospital. There's so many more things that I was worrying about than the actual heart failure diagnosis. Yeah. And, And of course, the irony is that when you've got a heart condition... Um, the last thing you need is stress. Absolutely. And of course, my stress levels were going up. I wasn't sleeping at night because of the stress and the worry and thinking, oh, the bailiff's going to come round. I've not paid this. You know, you wake up at two o'clock in the morning with your heart jumping out of your chest, worrying about things that you really shouldn't have to be worrying about when you've had that diagnosis. Well, what do you think what would you have liked to have seen put in place at the time? What, how could things be made better for people like you in that situation? I mean, medication, you know, you have unless you're receiving benefits, you've still got to pay for all your medication. Mm. So there's been times where I've not had enough money for my medication and I've had to go without. You know, this is something that should wow. not be happening. So there needs to be a department within the cardiac department, somebody that can help point people towards charities food banks how to receive benefits and because you know not everybody um is good with numbers with reading with writing as well good with being on the phone you know these are all things that you've got to learn to do a lot of when Mm. you want to get financial help yeah and and we haven't even touched yet on you know how this has all affected your mental health because it's it's bound to have can you explain to me you know, I know you're really resilient, but what are some of the ways in which it's affected your mental health, Vicky? Well, it's made me feel like I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough to go out with my friends. I'm not good enough to have a relationship because I've got nothing to offer these people. Not really. You know, I can't go out drinking all night and having a good time. I can't offer anybody a relationship. Um, So I've been single since 2013 um, because of this. Um, anxiety I, I suffer with anxiety a lot um, because when I go out walking I'm quite slow and people would like to crowd round and start walking up really fast behind you and try and shoo you along oh no we've got a slow one in front let's try and make a move fast um, so I get quite anxious when I'm 
out and about and because I'm at home a lot on my own I've got my own space so I also now found that I can't deal with crowded places either Mm. so I have suffered with depression as well in the past so I have to keep an eye on that because it's a very lonely life heart failure yeah you know people think this sort of romantic idea that people can come around and nurse you with chicken soup (laughs) that's not what happens you know you end up sat at home on your own day after day night after night weekend after weekend missing out on things because you're too tired you don't feel well enough you get dizzy every time you stand up you feel like you're going to pass out all the time you know it's just there are so many different aspects of it that affect your mental health yeah and you don't realize that until you've had a diagnosis yeah I mean you've just said something really quite shocking and and sort of moving you said you don't feel you have anything to offer in a relationship which is just not true you just clearly haven't found the right person um (laughs) so so what what are some of the biggest problems you've found in relationships you know with partners that you've you've been involved with well I want to be able to offer somebody you know to be able to spend time with them go out, do things with them, especially on the weekends. And if they're working, I don't feel they're going to want a partner that's sat at home all day, not been able to do anything, you know. And then when they come round, I want to be able to cook them a nice meal and, you know, things like that. I can't plan things like that because I don't know whether I'm going to be well enough to stand in the kitchen and cook something. I don't want somebody else having to take care of me. So I'd rather just take care of myself. And on the days that I can't take care of myself, I don't really want somebody else seeing that. Yeah, no, I completely understand. I mean, s- since your diagnosis, you have been in relationships. So, I mean, have have the guys you've been in relationships with not been understanding, or what have, have been? It, it, if you're happy to talk about it, what what are some of the what's the reaction you've had? Well, I've had one relationship, serious relationship. I was diagnosed in 2012, and I had a relationship in 2013, and that was the person that I was going to try and have children with. So he came with me to the uh, appointment and he just sat there in shock and didn't say a single thing. I had to do all the talking. He wanted to be with me, but once he found out I couldn't have children, that was it. So, yeah, since then, I was single for six years and then I had a very brief relationship. um, But that didn't last because he was very lazy and just wanted me to do everything all the time. Cook, go shopping, buy everything and just do do everything. And I just wanted somebody that could support me. I didn't want someone to look after me, but I wanted someone that could do at least 50%. Well, yeah. You know. <laughs> All of us bit, do. <laughs> yeah. And maybe a bit more if I was having a bad day. Yeah. But no, he wasn't willing to do any of that. And I thought, you know what? I need someone to support me, not drain me. So that I, I binned him off. I was like, no, you're not bringing anything positive to my life. You're actually making me more tired because I'm just doing having to do so much more when you're here. And it shouldn't be like that. Yeah. So that's why I've just, I had that massive long break because I just didn't have the confidence and trust in anybody after what had happened. And then that just cemented my belief that I don't have anything to offer anybody and that nobody would really want me in the the current condition that I'm in. Yeah. So I've just given up now. Yeah. Well, I, for what it's worth, I don't think, I think you should get yourself back up there because I think you've got so much to offer somebody thank you no I I, I really mean that which which brings me on to so going going through you know as as we're talking I know it all sounds very grim but I'm constantly amazed by you you are because I know you quite well now you're an incredibly positive person and you do take you know that there are some a lot of good things in your life you can you just tell me about some of the positives things you enjoy doing and and that you can do I mean cats I've got my cats they have kept me absolutely sane especially during lockdown (laughs) they drive me crazy a lot of the time as well I won't say what they are without you know swearing but (laughs) (laughs) they are they can be rat bags at times but yeah I've been I've got one cat called George and he is with me all the time George made a brief appearance earlier and (laughs) he is with me all the time and he will if I sometimes it's not happened so much recently but I used to stop breathing in my sleep and he would wake me up and he would either tickle me with his my face with his whiskers or purr really loudly or if I still didn't wake up he would like claw at me Um, so he's just absolutely amazing 
It's remarkable. Yeah, I've never had a cat like it before. Yeah. And then I've got George, uh, sorry, Bob, who likes to bring me dead and live presents. And then Sonny, who just marches around like he owns the place and he's a bit of a diva. So, you know, they've all got their different personalities, bless them. But, I, you know, I've got a great set of neighbours and friends around where I live now. It's a much more uh, community-based um, place. So people check in on me. Um, and when I am feeling well enough, I'll go out, maybe do a bit of shopping with my neighbours. I've got one neighbour who will come with me all the time and she lifts everything and packs everything and brings it to the door. And she doesn't drive, so I do the driving. She does all the stuff that I can't do. And she's really good. She'll try and get me out and about for a walk, although sometimes that goes a bit wrong and we end up having to go a bit further than anticipated and then it takes me days to recover. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, you know, that's really, really good for my mental health. Not so much my physical health at the time, but it's good for my mental health. So, you know, she's really good at that. And I've got another neighbour that phones me and checks in on me a couple of times a week. And she's elderly, so I do stuff for her. So I, like order stuff off the internet for her. I take her, I've took her for her COVID vaccines and I do all her techie stuff for her that she can't do with her telly and her phone and her iPad. And I've got neighbours over the road that check in and, you know, we take each other's parcels or I'll take theirs. We we do lots and lots of things for each other. So it's really, really nice. I've got a, a good group of people around me and I've got a few friends that I've known for a long time that will come over and be like, Vicky, do you want to have an afternoon of a takeaway and a film or something? I'll come over or they'll stay over and, you know, we do stuff. So that's really nice. I've got a lot of good people around me. So that's always really positive. Yeah. And it's lovely that despite your situation, you you know, you do a lot for other people. But I suppose that gives you a sense of purpose, which is is good for you. Yeah, I mean, when you've got a a job, you have a sense of purpose. So when you lose your job, you lose that sense of purpose and you kind of feel like you're no use to anybody. So when I've got these people around me that there are little bits and pieces that I can do to help, it does make me feel good and it does give me that sense of purpose that I lost when I had to give up work. So it, it does mean a great deal more than it probably would to most people. Yeah. And can you, I mean, you mentioned earlier, we've just, well, we're we're still suffering the after effects of the pandemic, but can you describe to me what what that was like for you? It must have been really lonely. And and did you struggle getting appointments um, and and for people to talk to when you, you felt maybe your symptoms were changing? Yeah, I mean, the first seven weeks I completely shielded and then I was told that people with heart disease don't need to shield. So I kind of started venturing out a little bit. I mean, I had friends bringing stuff through the windows, shopping and things like that. But um, I was okay for a while and then I found my appointments just didn't come through. And then the next one that should have come through, they tried to cancel until 2022. And I said, my symptoms have changed I need to see somebody. So it's it's only been video appointments. I've managed to have one echo and then I had to come back and have a video appointment with the consultant to discuss that. And my symptoms have definitely got worse and I keep trying, you know, I keep contacting them. I've contacted my GP, I've contacted my cardiologist and saying, look, I'm really struggling with my symptoms, but I've still not got an appointment. I've still not managed to see anybody face to face since 2019. So I'm not really sure what's going on, but it's definitely affected me and my health. Yeah. And this is somebody that I don't think where it's been urgent. So people that are urgent, I dread to think how they're coping with all of this. Yeah. No, that's a, a that that's a really good point. I mean, as you say, it's it's not just you, but when you're in it, it must be it must be really worrying, especially as you you don't know when you're next going to be able to sit in front of someone and and have a proper conversation Mm. yeah and it's there's been times where I've thought oh I really need to phone somebody I'm really not feeling well and I haven't because I didn't want to go into hospital because Covid's in the hospital Yeah. yeah that's been another massive fear and I did actually get taken in by ambulance in February and I put it off and put it off I've been feeling really unwell all day and it got worse and worse and worse I had a test while I was there, a COVID test, and they were really good. And they had me in and several tests and back out within four hours, um, which was the quickest I think I've ever been in and out of A&E, to be honest. So they were really, really good. But obviously the anticipation 
and the build up and everything in my head, I don't want to go, I don't want to go, was really making me anxious and making my stress levels high and obviously making my heart worse. So that, uh, again, our irony. <laughs> yeah, again, yeah. the irony of not getting stressed and yeah. the stress, the thought of everything was actually, the anticipation of it all was actually worse than the reality the actual yeah. reality of it yeah I mean we've spoken a little bit about you you feel that often you're not I mean you know you you have had you know very good treatment in in the past from cardiologists and you've just said that you know that you couldn't really fault that when you went into hospital but you we have spoken about you not feeling heard or seen as a person when you sometimes by the medical profession is can you sort of elaborate on that yeah I mean when I was younger, the care that I got was fantastic. But I have noticed since I've got older, certainly since my 40s, that when I say I have symptoms, unless they are there in black and white on an ECG or an echo, they just tend to ignore it. Well, no, there's no reason for you to have those symptoms, so it can't be that. Um, and I think a lot more needs to be done people need to, the medical profession need to listen to patients more. And I've had cardiologists in the past that have been brilliant and one of them said to me he told me that his professor at university told him always listen to your patients because 95 percent of the time they are right no matter what they say they're they're right even if the evidence isn't there they're right um, and he always listened to me and when I had problems and they weren't showing up he did extra tests and he was like yeah you're right this there is something wrong but now I'm finding that I'm going in and they're saying, well, you've had an echo, nothing's changed on your echo. So, you know, there's no reason for you to be getting them to them see symptoms. They can't be heart related. Now, I know they're heart related because I know the difference between, you know, I know the signs. I've, I've had this seriously since I was 15 years old. Mm. Um, and I've always been kind of laid back about it and left things longer than I probably should. So when I get to the point where I'm like, I've got symptoms and I'm, I'm really not feeling well, it's probably a lot later than most people would, you know, speak to the doctor about. So then I'm, fi I'm finding now that they're just saying, no, no, we've done a test a year ago and there's nothing on there that, should, that shows that your symptoms should be changing. Yeah. So they just don't seem to listen. So I've got, you know, one word for any of the medical profession out there. Please listen to your patients and don't just dismiss when they're telling you they're not feeling well because you can't see it in black and white. Like you said, you more than anybody know your body because it's your body. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We know the changes in our body. Yeah. As human beings, we know when we feel different one day from the day we did the day before. Yeah. So when a patient's telling you that something's changed, yeah, don't just ignore them because that for me has made, meant that I've got very very little trust in the medical profession now, which isn't good with the diagnosis that I've got. That I just I don't know. It's left me feeling very guarded and untrustworthy of them because I just don't feel that they've got my best interests at heart because I get ignored a lot of the time. They don't seem to take seriously what I'm trying to say. So, you know, if they're not listening to me, what's the point in telling them? And also it's about, you know, even if they do turn out, you know, because they are the professionals, if they do turn out to be medically correct and, and in that instance there is nothing seriously, you know, wrong or, or even though you said, you know, I, I feel like I'm deteriorating. It's just about reassurance and just the act of listening, isn't it? Well, that's it. It's but, but being listened to would then mean that I would have trust in that doctor again. Yeah, yeah. And, and that is a massive, massive thing, especially for patients that have got long-term medical issues that have gone on for decades like I have. You know, to have somebody that you can trust and listen to and know that when you speak to that person, they've got your best interest at heart and they will say, you know, Vicky, we did this test and we found out that there wasn't anything wrong. So that just puts your mind at ease. You can yeah. just relax a bit. Yeah, yeah. And then your stress levels go down and there's, you know, there's so many positives to just being listened to and taken seriously. Absolutely. Can I just ask you, so it, despite what you've been through, you've, you've worked with the British Heart Foundation for a few years now and you've always been brilliant about sharing your story um, to raise awareness and sort of just let people know the reality of what, you know, what it is to listen, to, to, to live with a heart condition. 
uh, like heart failure. I mean, you've spoken at events for us. Um, you've done some press for us, and you're now recording this podcast. What? Why do you support the British Heart Foundation? I think it is incredibly important to share as much information as you can because the more people that know about heart disease the more people can understand it but also for me the British Heart Foundation without the British Heart Foundation there is no research you know there's no funding for the research which then leads to medication operations procedures everything that helps people with heart disease you know we go to the hospital and we see a cardiologist and we have an operation on our heart but where does that all stem from that stems from research and funding from the british heart foundation so without that it wouldn't take place that's brilliant and so you've mentioned about you know not feeling listened to sometimes by the medical profession but and feeling lonely do you so does it help you also knowing that the british heart foundation is there and does that give you hope and also is it like a a little beacon of, of light you feel that you know there is someone listening to you and fighting your corner yeah exactly that you know if you get nowhere with all these other avenues the British Heart Foundation are always there there's British Heart Foundation offer you know there's nurses that you can talk to there's people you can talk to if you're worried there's lots of different avenues but for me personally it is having that place where I do get listened to and I get taken seriously I don't get dismissed and I know that they'll help me as much as they can which is why I always like to help and do as much as I can because you know it swings in roundabouts and I just feel that we have to help each other whenever we can. And yeah, the British Heart Foundation, I mean, without the British Heart Foundation, I certainly wouldn't have had the life-saving surgery that I had. And there would be millions of other people out there that wouldn't have had life-saving surgery, procedures, medication. There's so many things that have been funded, produced, and people that have been helped by the British Heart Foundation being there. Oh, that's lo- lovely to hear. And that's, you know, people like you are the reason we exist. So that that is nice to hear. And, what... and people like the British Heart Foundation are the reason that people like me exist. Oh, bless you. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are your hopes? What, what is your big hope for the, for the future? I just want to be better and live a normal life. Yeah. And at the moment I'm in limbo and I'm being told there's nothing that can be done. Yeah. I'm, I'm too well to have a transplant. I'm too ill to live a normal life so I'm stuck in this limbo of feeling rubbish most of the time and it's not very nice you know at the moment I don't know what the future holds for me but ideally I would love something to happen where I could be better this magic wand is waved and suddenly Vicky's better and she's living the life of a normal 47 year old I can go back to work I can start my own business yeah I can start socializing normally with my friends again I can go out at weekends you know go for walks um because you know I live I live in Bournemouth I've got the beach I've got the Jurassic Coast I've got the new forest all on my doorstep and I can't enjoy it because to go out for a walk I might drive up there and then not feel very well or start walking and not feel very well and then have to come home or I might not be well enough to go in the first place which is most days yeah you know and I know that it's all there and I want to enjoy it and I can't so very very frustrating so on that note if you had one message for British Heart Foundation researchers what would it be what would you like to say to them just keep going (laughs) absolutely keep going and just do everything that you can um, to help people like me, you know, people from next generations, you know, future generations. Just please, please, please keep going. Don't give up um, because the work that the researchers and the British Heart Foundation do is life saving and it is incredibly important to millions of people. You know, heart disease comes in so many different shapes and forms from having, you know, just something very small that you might need to take one tablet for or have one checkup a year to needing a heart transplant. It varies so much. It's not just one thing, you know, so please, please, please keep going. Don't give up. We have no intention of giving up. I can, I can, I can assure <laughs> you of that. 
that that is one thing that's certain. And as we draw to a close, Vicky, can, can I ask you what advice would you give to anyone who who is sort of starting on the journey that you've been through and perhaps is getting a diagnosis like that or, or living with a life-changing condition? I would say do some research via the British Heart Foundation because there's so much stuff on Google that will scare the life out of you. And don't think that it's a doom and gloom diagnosis. You know, there is so much that can be done. But, you know, have a look. Go go to the British Heart Foundation website and look. There's, there's loads and loads and loads of different information on every single different type of heart condition. And there are different avenues. There's people that you can talk to. Also, speak to your cardiologist. Don't be afraid to ask questions um, and ask them, you know, are there any other avenues that they can go down to get help? Are there any trials being done? Is there any research that they can help with? Always ask these questions. You know, don't just think, oh, I've been given this diagnosis. I've got to just sit at home and wait for them to fix me or worse. You know, there is proactive things that you can do to help yourself. Perfect advice. And is there anything else that you would like to say? I think the the, the support for women during pregnancy, I think, and the financial thing, there needs to be more support for that you know a clinic a clinic for people to have financial information but there needs to be more support for people when they're told that they can't have children or having children is going to be difficult yeah and there needs to be a special specialist area of that vicky thank you so much for joining us today on the ticker tapes you are more than welcome it's been lovely to chat to you as always and you know if anybody ever has any questions they would like to ask me or to talk to me about anything they're more than welcome to Be careful what you wish for. (laughs) (laughs) If you've got any questions about your heart or circulatory health, call the BHF's Heart Helpline to speak with a nurse between 9 to 5 on Monday to Fridays on 0300 330 3311 or email hearthelpline at bhf.org.uk. You'll also find useful information in the episode notes and on our website, bhf.org.uk.